0: Well, let's turn again to the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And uh, with just this word of reminder, the issue that we need to keep in the back of our mind as we look at at this chapter was a question that the Corinthians had uh, addressed to Paul. There were a number of issues that faced the church in Corinth, That uh, the scriptures had not uh, spoken about. There was no direct teaching in the Old Testament. And these Corinthian believers were understandably concerned about their behavior. And so they wrote to Paul to ask him what uh, course they should follow. And in this particular uh, matter, the issue in the back of the passage is a question raised about eating meat offered to idols. Now, that's not a question that concerns us so much today. But it uh, was of grave interest, great interest to these Corinthian believers. It was a practice in those days, simply a part of their culture, to uh, sacrifice an animal and then those portions of the animal that uh, were not used in the animal sacrifice, what was left over, was sold in the marketplace for human consumption and uh, the question was, what should we Christians do about This food, is it proper to eat meat offered to idols? Perhaps in eating uh, a steak that's sold in the marketplace that is a part of the animal carcass that was sacrificed to animals, we're implicating ourselves in idol worship. And so they wrote to uh, get an answer from Paul about this issue. We know from chapter 8 that Paul's answer is very specific. There's nothing wrong with eating meat offered to idols. Idols are nothing. The uh, viewpoint that the Old Testament takes about idols is to poke fun at them. The Bible takes idolatry very seriously, but idols are a joke. And uh, so Paul says there's nothing wrong with eating meat offered to idols. However, there may be some believers... Who, because their conscience is weak and because they were formerly involved in idol worship, who believe that to eat meat offered to idols would be to implicate them in idol worship. And therefore they couldn't do it. And so Paul says, if you're with a Christian brother, and he can't eat meat because it would violate his conscience, even though this is not an issue that God has prohibited, a matter that God has prohibited, if your brother thinks he's sinning and eating meat, then he is actually sinning. He's violating his conscience. And so Paul says, don't, uh, don't encourage him to eat meat. Don't cause him to stumble. Paul says, in fact, I'll forego any privilege, as right as it is, rather than cause my brother to fall into sin. And then in chapter 9, he gives us an example from his own experience. He refers to the highest privileges and rights that anyone could enjoy, and they're those of an apostle. Paul says he had certain rights as an apostle, which he was willing to set aside rather than hurt any other believer. So he uses himself as an example of one who's willing to forego his rights. And then in the opening verses of chapter 10, Paul talks about the root problem, the thing that keeps us from... Foregoing our rights and it's this spirit of discontent that uh, that we all feel from time to time an unwillingness to be content with the Lord himself and what he what he gives us we want something more and in this case there were Corinthian Christians who felt that if they didn't eat meat they would be missing out on something very valuable in life and Paul says that really is the root problem the spirit of discontent and He says three things about that problem. It's common. It's a common problem. No temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man. But secondly, the pressure is controlled. God will not allow you to be pressured beyond the point of endurance. And thirdly, there is a constant resource. There is always a way of escape, and the way of escape is back to the Lord Jesus and His resources. Eat and drink of Him. Let him satisfy you. You don't need anything else. That's his point. And if you understand that principle, then you'll you'll forego any right. You won't demand anything. You'll be satisfied with the Lord Jesus himself. And then in verse 14 of chapter 10, Paul begins to give some definitive answers. He speaks specifically to the questions that they raise. It's always Paul's way to First deal with underlying principles, root problems, and then to talk about specific procedure. And that's what he's doing in verses 14 and following. The little conjunction with which this section begins, therefore, really means in summation. In other words, given all the foregoing facts in chapters 8 and and 9, of course they didn't have chapter divisions then, but given all the argument up to this point, these are the conclusions, Paul says, that I come to, and there are two. There are two. Verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And then secondly, in verse 24, Let no one seek his own good, but seek the good of your neighbor. Both of those verbs are commands, and it's around those two commands that the argument revolves. So his twofold answer is to flee idolatry and seek the good of your neighbor. And the passage divides around those two, uh, those two verbs. The first section is verses 14 through 22. The second is verses 23 through 11. One. Unfortunately, this is another one of those places where the chapter division is, the wrong, is in the wrong place. Rumor has it that these chapter divisions were put uh, in the Bible by some monk who was copying a scroll, and every time his, his donkey stumbled, he made a chapter division because uh, very often they're in uh, exactly the wrong place. Let's begin reading with verse 14 of chapter 10. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. He's not being sarcastic. He's simply saying these are self-evident truths. Any intelligent, wise man would be able to make the same discernment that, uh, that he's making. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices, sharers, in the altar... What do I mean, then, that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? Now, Paul begins with this command, which uh, is preceded by a term of endearment because he loved these, these people deeply. Dearly beloved, he says, flee from idolatry. Actually, he says, keep on fleeing. From idolatry, the implication being that this is a repeated temptation, one which we have to face over and over again. As I said before, Corinth was a place that uh, was was filled with idol temples and idol worship. The uh, topography of Corinth is very much like that of Boise, and if this were modern-day Corinth, there would be a temple to Apollo down in the middle of uh, downtown Boise on the corner of 8th and Main Street. And up on the hill behind us here where Schaefer Butte is would be the Temple of Aphrodite. And all the little churches that are scattered all over the city of Boise would be located where the idol temples were, were, were located in those days. So they were accessible to everyone and idol worship was simply the name of the game. Most of the people in the city who were not Christian were idolaters. And they worshiped regularly in these temples. And associated with this temple worship was every conceivable form of, of, uh, activity and vice. And there were restaurants. And if we were thinking of them in terms of, uh, an analogy today, there would be a, a nice restaurant and a bar and a disco and, and there would be a, a house of prostitution there and it was all, uh, it was all together. It was a part of, of their temple worship. It was the center of action. It's where the leading citizens uh, could be found, the opinion formers, the political leaders, the sports figures, the movie stars, the, the people who were anybody in terms of the world's uh, estimate. That's where, that's where things were at. That's where you went if you wanted to be in on the action. That was the fun place, sort of like Studio 54, I suppose. And that's where everyone went. And if you didn't go, you were cut out of the action. You weren't in the center of things. But Paul says, if you go there, and that's what he's talking about, participating in these idol feasts, the revelry and the drunken brawls and the prostitution and all the other things that, that went on at the temple, you were involving yourself in idol worship. And so Paul says, flee. Keep on fleeing these things, regardless of the attraction, no matter who goes. Or who induces you to go, Paul says, stay away. Now we're inclined to think, because we live in modern times, when we're not pagan, that uh, this passage isn't relevant. Because we don't worship idols. The only place you find idols today are in museums. But uh, that's not true. There are idols all around us. Anything that we worship other than God is an idol. Anything to which we attribute ultimate worth or anything that we do that gives us ultimate worth is an idol. Our word worship is based on an Anglo-Saxon word, worth-ship, that means to attribute worth to something. So anything that in our eyes is ultimately important and significant, it preoccupies us, it's the thing that buys up our time, the thing in which we invest the bulk of our time and energy and think time can be an idol it can be a thing it can be a piece of property that we're counting on for security downstream it can be our business our vocation our education it can be a person if your uh, knees get weak at the sound of the name of some rock star then that's probably your idol or some sports figure if, you're, if you emulate someone uh, at the expense of, of any other uh, pattern in your life, that's idolatry. It can be your children, it can be your mate, it can be a boyfriend, it can be a girlfriend, it can be a car, it can be a house, it can be a thing, that, anything. If we attribute ultimate worth to that, if that's what gives us satisfaction and joy and a sense of wholeness in life, then it's an idol. I used to have an idol. In fact, I've had a lot of idols. And uh, and I still have idols that I'm tempted to worship. But I, when I was a kid growing up, I had an idol. It was a 32 three-window Ford Coupe. I, I told Les Goodrich when I first came here that I used to have a 32 Ford three-window Coupe. And he told me afterward that anybody who used to have a 32 Ford three-window Coupe couldn't be all bad. Uh, And this was a beauty. I scoured Texas, North Texas, trying to find this thing because every other kid in town was looking for one. And I finally found one in a farmer's barn. And I invested an entire year of my life in that car. And when I got through, it was a thing of beauty. We reworked the chassis and I had hydraulic hydraulic brakes and about 10 coats of black lacquer. It was absolutely translucent and a modified 48 Mercury and flathead in the thing, and it it was a going machine. And uh, I remember at one point in my life, I spent an entire week trying to figure out how I was going to con a friend of mine out of a more radical cam for it, not because I raced it, because I wouldn't dare do that, but because I wanted it to sound a little meaner on the street, you know, (laughs) idle a little rougher. (laughs) And I spent hours and hours, and nobody knows how much money in that car that was my idol. And uh, one day I was coming back from uh, from a drag race up in northern Texas. I wasn't racing, I just went to spectate. And I was late getting home and I was zipping down one of those Texas roads about 90 miles an hour and I threw a fan blade and it went right through the radiator and up through the top of the hood and just destroyed the, the engine compartment. And I remember sitting on the side of that dusty old Texas road and looking at the remains of my engine and wondering what it was the Lord was trying to teach me. (laughs) Now that's sort of a harmless thing and I, you know, cars are fun and and a lot of things like that are enjoyable and right and proper but they can very easily become an idol because to us they have ultimate significance and ultimate worth and that's what gives us worth. Well, I could drive around town in that car and I was somebody because everybody would look at it. And you see, we can do that. Now that's what Paul is saying. Flee from idolatry. Anything that we worship, anything that gives us ultimate word, we need to, we need to put away. Now we may not actually put the thing away, but we may need to correct our, our attitude toward it. Now you note know how Paul argues throughout the rest of this, of this chapter. He's contrasting The table of the Lord and an idol table. In other words, there are two hosts. The Lord sits at one table and an idol sits at another table. And he's referring, of course, to the possibility of these Christians going into idol temples and eating uh, the meats that have been offered to idols in the temple itself and participating in these festivals in the temple. And that, he says, is the table of an idol. And on the other side, there is the table of the Lord, the table at which the Lord sits, and that's what we call the Lord's table, our celebration around the uh, the, the elements that the Lord gave us, the bread and, and the cup. And Paul says uh, what we all know, what, what you eat is what you are. These tables actually symbolize a greater reality. What you take in is what you become. If you're sitting in an idol table and you're appropriating, you're, you're taking in the things that are associated with idol worship, then that's what you become. You become an idolater. But if you sit at the Lord's table, you should understand that this is a symbol of a greater reality, eating and drinking of Christ. You see, that's That's what makes Christianity unique and distinctive in the world of religions. It's not a ritual. It's not some religious performance that we make for God's sake. It's a relationship with the Lord of the universe. The Lord Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, indwells us. And we eat and drink of his life. He is our resource for living. He's everything we need. He's the source of our wisdom and strength and patience and love. We don't produce these things out of self-effort. We produce them as a result of his life in us. And, and as we often say, well, you are what you eat. If you eat and drink of Christ, then you display his character. If you eat and drink at an idle table, he says, then you that's the character you display. Uh, last week, a friend of mine came by, picked me up for, dinner, for lunch, lunch appointment, and a businessman here in the area, and he had a friend with him in the car, business associate, whom he was taking to the airport to put on a plane. He was flying out of the country. And uh, as we got in the car, uh, my friend introduced me to his companion, and we chatted for a bit. I found out he was from uh, England, and we had a, just a delightful conversation for about a block as we drove down the street and then uh, my friend said, David, I've been talking to Morris here about his relationship to Jesus Christ. And Morris doesn't understand that there's anything unique about Christian faith. What do you think? Which is kind of a nice way to get drawn into a conversation. <laughs> and uh, we just had a great time uh, as we drove to the airport sharing uh, about the uniqueness of the Lord. And this was a man who was very sophisticated. In terms of world religions, he'd lived in India. He understood Hinduism. But he did not understand the uniqueness of of Christian faith. To him it was just another ritual, another system of rules. And he did not understand that when you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, you come in contact with with the Lord of the universe who comes to indwell you, to give you all that you need for life. Now that's Paul's point. There are two tables, and we have to choose which table we'll sit at. Because, he says, you can't have it both ways. You can't have both the table of idols and and the Lord's table. Notice how he puts it in verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord in the cup of demons. (coughs) Pardon me. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord in the table of demons. He does not say you must not. He says you cannot. It's the same argument that the Lord uses in in the uh, uh, Sermon on the Mount. You cannot serve God and men because you'll end up hating one and loving the other, loving one, hating the other. That's Paul's point. You can't have it both ways. You can't make an idol out of your mate or your furniture or your house or your business or your car or hunting or fishing or some sports figure. And have the life of Christ. Because you cut yourself off from the resources of Christ when you eat and drink at an idol table. You can't have it both ways. Now, we would like to. We'd like to have God's power for our program. But Paul says you can't do that. It's either one or the other. Uh, Do you know where I see men struggling? Women, too in this area it's it's when we have to start a new business or a new venture of some sort or when there's a change in jobs that requires a great deal of time and effort and the tendency is to get more and more involved in trying particularly in the startup phase of this thing and you're spending 18 to 20 hours a day trying to make it go and all of your time and energy is invested in in that business now that may be necessary and there's nothing wrong with that but the problem is that we get so preoccupied, it so consumes us, that it really does become the thing that gives us worth, and the thing that we attribute ultimate worth to, and we discover we're spending less and less time in the scripture. We're spending little time in prayer, which is our way of expressing our dependence upon God. We're not getting together with other Christian men or women during the week to support and encourage one another. We forego the opportunity to meet together for lunch with another believer and encourage one another. All that goes by the board. And you see, Paul is warning us about that danger. When a thing becomes an idol, it consumes us. And, and we're cut off from the resources of God. You can't have it both ways, Paul says. It's one or the other. Now, the third thing that Paul tells us in this passage is something we could never know apart from Revelation. He tells us that behind this seemingly innocent activity, this uh, pursuit of a, of a vocation or something in our life, which in itself is neutral, behind this thing is a demon. Notice what he says in verse 19. What do I mean then, that a thing sacrificed to anything is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, that's not the problem. It's not that thing of wood there. As I said, in the Old Testament, idols are, are poked fun at. That's not the problem. Verse 20, he says, No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. Now, that that was revealed to Paul uh, by Moses in in what we would call Deuteronomy 32. Moses told the people of Israel before they went into the land that, that idol worship was demon worship, basically, because behind that idol was not a god but a demon. And what we learn from this truth is that behind these seemingly innocent activities and attitudes is demonic activity. The whole universe is armed for our destruction, and we ought never to forget that. The Lord told us that Satan is a liar and a murderer. He deceives and he destroys. He gets us on a hook by lying to us and telling us that if we just work hard enough at this thing, it'll produce. Or if we invest enough time, then it'll give us a sense of worth or wholeness. But he's a liar. And his his goal is to destroy us, to destroy the quality of life, to bring us to the place that we wake up in the morning and we're bored. And we don't even want to walk out of the house. We're grouchy. Everything strikes us the wrong way, irritable, hard to live with, because we're bored, frustrated, and unsatisfied, and unhappy with life. And that's where idols will take us. I've been there, and so have you. And Paul says, I want you to know that. Behind this activity is an enemy. There are demons there. And they're out to destroy you and to ruin the quality of life and to blight and mar your life. So Paul says, flee from idolatry. And then finally in verse 22... He says, uh, quoting Deuteronomy 32, Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? Not only behind idol worship is there demon activity, but, but when we worship idols, we trigger God's wrath. God gets jealous. You know, jealousy is not always a bad thing. God gets jealous. There is a legitimate jealousy. Throughout the Old Testament, when Israel was unfaithful, God got jealous because Israel rightfully belonged to him. It's wrong to be jealous over something that you don't possess, but it's right to be jealous when something that you legitimately possess is being taken away from you. It's wrong for you men to be jealous if your wives are unfaithful, or you wives to be jealous if your, if your man is unfaithful. That's proper because God gets jealous. Uh, four or five years ago, back in California, a friend of mine called me up one day, and he told me that his, his wife had been unfaithful to him and was going off with another man, and, and it was a total surprise to him. He was heartbroken over this turn of events. But he said he had decided that the Christian thing to do would be to let her go. He wanted her to be happy. And since Scripture teaches us to seek the good of other people, that he was willing to set aside his own rights and let her go with this other man because he would make her more happy. And that he said he felt was the Christian activity that he should a Christian thing he should do. And I said, Less, I don't know how to say this, except to just say it, but that's not Christian at all. That's about as non Christian as as you could be. Uh I said, as a matter of fact, what I would do is sit your wife down and say, now look, hon, you belong to me. And I'm not going to let you go. I'm going to fight to the last ounce of my strength to keep you because you're mine. I'll do anything to keep you. I know there's some things I've done, and, and I'll, I'll, by God's grace, I'll try to change. And I will change. But I'm not going to let you go. I'm going to fight for you. And then I would go tell your wife's suitor, look, so-and-so, whatever his name was, if you ever hang around my house again when I'm not there, I'm going to bend a two-by-four over your head. (laughs) And he said, that's not Christian. And I said, well, you should read the book of Hosea if you think that's not Christian. That's exactly what God did with Israel, exactly. He dealt with his bride, and then he went out and judged the nations that were luring his bride away. And you see, that's the way God is. It's a terrible thing to incur the wrath of God. That's the worst enemy you can have in the world. (laughs) He loves us, but he becomes our opponent when we're unfaithful to him. And uh, when we're unfaithful to him, he goes out to get us and to bring us back. Because he knows that idolatry will destroy us. So you see, that's why Paul says, Flee from idolatry because it cuts us off from the life of God. Because behind these idols there are demons seeking to destroy us. And because it stirs up God's jealousy. Now the question is what's your idol and what's mine? We all have them. We're all tempted to pursue them. It can be a thing, it can be a person, it can be a place, it can be a political party. It can be a political candidate. It can be our children. It can be a business associate. It can be almost anything. Anything that occupies the place of preeminence in our life, the thing that we're preoccupied with, the thing that we worship, the thing that, to which we attribute ultimate worth, the thing that gives us ultimate worth, that's an idol. And Paul says, flee, keep on fleeing from idolatry. And then in verses 23 and following, Paul takes up the second subject, and my time is gone. This is a terrible situation to be in when you're half done and your time is all done. But let me, uh, in five minutes, try to survey what Paul says in 23 through 11.1. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. And he's going back to the point that he makes in 1 Corinthians 6. We're free, Paul says. We as Christians enjoy a remarkable amount of freedom. Very few things are prohibited. The New Testament is our guideline. Those things that are forbidden in the New Testament are forbidden to us as Christians. And if you look at them very carefully, there are very few things. And they're all things that ultimately would destroy us. It's because God loves people that he prohibits anything. There was only one tree in the garden, and there were thousands of trees that Adam and Eve could enjoy. And that's the way it is with us. This is a right principle. All things are lawful except those things that are specifically prohibited in Scripture. And therefore, as a Christian, I'm free. where Scripture has not specifically forbidden me to do a thing. It's the freedom that I enjoy in Christ. But Paul says there are certain things that may limit my freedom. And one is my love for my brother. Because I really don't want to live to exploit that freedom and and do as I please. My freedom is not to live as I please, but my freedom is to serve other people. And so if any freedom that I have causes injury to another brother, if it uh, keeps anyone from growing up to full stature in Christ, Paul says, forget it. I won't exercise that liberty. I don't need to. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. That's the point. It's the same point that Paul makes in Philippians. Look not only on your own things, but the things of, of others. And then a specific answer to their question, verse 25. Eat anything that is sold in the marketplace without asking questions for conscience' sake, for the earth is the Lord's and everything that is in it. The meat that's sold in that marketplace, Paul says, belongs to God. It doesn't belong to that idol, and therefore you have every right To buy that meat, when you go shopping in the markets, you can purchase it, take it home, eat it, don't ask any questions, enjoy it. And in verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you and you wish to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. Now note that Paul says, flee from idolatry. He doesn't say, flee from idolaters. Because here's a case where an unbelieving idolater, your next door neighbor, in Corinth, invites you over to a backyard barbecue, and he takes one of these uh, steaks purchased in the marketplace or at the temple, and he lays it on the barbecue grill and, and invites you over to eat with him. Perfectly all right, Paul says. We ought to be spending our time, much of our time in that way, developing friendships with non-Christian neighbors and eating with them and doing things with them, That uh, those things that we can do. Being, as Jesus put it, the friend of sinners. So that's all right, Paul says. If an unbeliever asks you to eat with him, do so. And eat the meat that's placed before you without asking any questions. But if anyone should say to you, this is meat offered to idols. And here he's talking about a Christian brother, not the non-Christian. Because note he goes on to talk about offending the man's conscience. That is causing him to sin. And he couldn't possibly be saying that about a non-Christian. That's never the issue to God. The issue is always his relationship to God, not the things that we call sins. So this is the situation. An unbeliever, a neighbor invites you over to eat, and you invite along a Christian friend, and out comes the steaks, and you're getting ready to bite into this steak, and your Christian neighbor says, I, I can't eat this. You don't know what I've been through. I, I've, I've been through this whole routine. I've been an idolater, and if I eat that meat, it just evokes all the memories of the things. I can't do it. So Paul says, fine. He just push the plate away, and Paul says, well, I won't either. And he doesn't tell us what sort of explanation needs to be made to the non-Christian, and I'm sure he would always act in politeness and courtesy and sensitivity to their needs as well. But that's not the issue here as concerns for his brother. And Paul says, I won't do anything that will cause my brother to sin. Because I might eat and I could say to him, ah, what's the matter? You're just, you're no legalist. Don't be so uptight. Eat the meat. And he'd eat it and sin and I would, I would destroy the brother for whom Christ died in the sense that I would cause him guilt. Not loss of salvation. But he'd feel guilt. And so Paul says, I won't eat it. If anyone should say to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience' sake. I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's, for why is my freedom judged by another man's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? In other words, Paul says, this man's weak conscience, my Christian brother, has no effect on my conscience. I'm free to eat the meat, but it does have an effect on my actions. He can't slander me about the freedom I have. He can't say to me, well, you're too free. <laughs> he can't judge me. Paul's already spoken to that matter. But it does have some effect on my actions, and I may cur- curtail any action that causes my brother to be offended. And then as a as a final word in verse 31 through, verses 31 through 11, 1, Paul says, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The glory of God is his weight, it's his value. That's what the word means. I saw a tablet once listed all the uh, possessions of a wealthy man, and at the bottom it said, this is his glory. And uses the same Greek term that's used here. This is his weight, this is his wealth, this is his value. Paul's point is, so live that people attribute value and worth to God. Do I live like that? And do you? Am I so sensitive to the needs of my brother? Am I so willing to set aside my rights that people are led into a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ? That's what Paul is saying. Whatever you do, do it so that God has greater weight and value in the eyes of others. And then he tells us how we do this in verse 32. Give no offense, actually, Uh, become blameless, that's his point. Do what is right, either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many that they may be saved. Paul says, I do what's right so men can be redeemed, so they can be delivered from their sin, whether they're Christians or non-Christians, so they can grow in grace. That's the goal of my life. To make visible the invisible Christ, and to help others to grow up to maturity in Christ. And Paul says, I'll set aside any right if it's going to impede that, that process. I don't seek my own profit, but the profit of many. And in this final word in chapter 11, verse 1, Be imitators of me, as I am an imitator of Christ. Now, you look at the Lord's life. Here was a man who was always obedient to the Father. He always did those things that pleased the Father, he says. He never sinned. He was subject to the law. And yet, he was the freest man who ever lived. He was never inhibited. He always knew what to say. He was never lost for words. He was never under pressure. We get under pressure and give way to panic and and frustration and fear. They couldn't even take his life away from him. He was that free. Totally free, see. And yet he always limited that freedom by his love. That, that freedom was always limited by his love for the people around him. And he was always willing to set aside his freedom in order to serve another brother or sister. As the Gospels put it, he came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. He was a servant to everyone. There are many things he could have done. He said at one point to the disciples, there are a lot of things I could tell you, but I won't because you're not able to bear them. He was willing to accommodate himself in that sense and serve them. That was the pattern of his life. And Paul says, I imitate Christ, now you imitate me. You know what Paul is saying in this chapter? He's saying precisely what... Uh, The first commandment says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And your neighbor is yourself. That's the great commandment. Our whole life is summed up in those two relationships. To worship God and God alone. To have a single eye. To attribute ultimate worth to him. And to love our brother as ourselves. It's all summed up in those two words.